seen in relation to God. And we can just sort of sum it up, one God, three persons. The word Trinity describes God as one in three persons. All three are fully God. And again, the, the passage we look to uh, to sort of lay the foundation for this is this idea that there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And one of the things that I think is important for us to recognize um, when we particularly speak about the issue of the Trinity or talk about the subject of the Trinity, uh, we're not going to understand it. We're not going to be able to put it all together. Uh, we are the creature. God is the creator. And while we have his image, we are given that image, um, and that gives us value, that gives us worth, that makes us like him in some respects, we're never going to be fully like him, and we're never truly going to be able to understand him. He lives on an entirely different plane of existence. And so when Jeremiah speaks of this reality, there's none like you, O Lord. You're great. Your name is great. Um, you're to be feared. There's no one among all the nations. There's no one with wisdom. There's no one like the Lord our God. And this is particularly important for Jeremiah as he's speaking to a nation that is struggling with idolatry. They're struggling with worshiping gods that men have created, gods that have come out of the minds of man. And so when we talk about the Trinity and we, and we struggle to understand these concepts, we struggle to, to put together and fully comprehend what's being said here, it's a reminder to us that the God who is is not like us, that the God who is is great and mighty and far beyond us. And so we can't understand that one in three. And no matter what analogy we use, whether it be an egg, whether it be water, whether it be whatever number of different things that, that can be used there, which can at times help a little bit, in reality, they all fall far short of truly knowing the full nature of who our God is. Well, tonight, we're going to talk about the eternality of this concept of the Trinity. Has God always been a trinity? Now, um, this is important because this makes some very, there's some, there's some quote-unquote Christian organizations that exist today that would say no. They would say that God has not always been a trinity. Um, so it's important for us to understand what the Bible teaches about this. And the answer to this, has God always been a trinity? Yes. I mean, we could just say it that way, yes. But the answer that we've learned here is God has been and always will be a trinity. And then it ties this to the idea because he never changes. Um, there's a big theological term that we use for this. It's called the immutability of God. God cannot be acted upon. God cannot be, um, cannot be changed nor does he change. He is singular in his focus. He is singular in what he seeks to do. Um, and so if, if he is at any time a trinity, this idea of the fact that he doesn't change means then that he has always been a trinity. So we can even sort of extract, and we have other passages we're going to look to that, that uh, shore up this idea, but just from that logical viewpoint, if God never changes and he is, ever, and he is presented as being a trinity, 
then he has always been a trinity because he never changes. The passage we have here is John 17, 24. This is Christ praying to the Lord, uh, praying to the Father, right before he's about to go to the cross. Notice what he says here. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And he has a purpose to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me when? Before the foundation of the world. So there are, there are two things here in this passage that support the concept of the fact that God has always been a trinity, or at least at bare minimum that there has been a father and a son for all eternity. So who, who can tell me what those two things are here in this passage? I'm going to make you do the work tonight. <laughs> what's, what's the first thing that, that intimates to us that, God, that, that there has been a father and a son that have been part of the Trinity or have been God for all eternity? Okay. You've loved me before the foundation of the world. So, so there's, there's, there's two things sort of indicated there. First of all, before the foundation of the world means before time existed. So it, it's referring to that which exists outside of time, that which is in the realm of eternity. And then there is a, a two-person action that is happening there. You have a subject, if you will, from an English viewpoint, a subject and a direct object, all right? Um, the father provides love to the Son. So if the Father is loving the Son before the foundation of the world, what does that mean? What does it require then for the Son? What, what does it imply about the Son? He, he was with Him. He existed. Now, get ready because there's, a, there's a, a truth in Scripture that sort of blows your mind about this. We have been chosen and loved in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. And so, when, if we were to strip away the eternality of Christ, or particularly of the Son, we begin to strip away the very basis of our salvation. God has, has placed us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And what Jesus is actually going to say uh, in the next few verses, something we've looked at many times over and over again, is that he desires that the, the love that the Father has for the Son would be evident to those who are in Christ and that they would actually know that love. How do we know that love? Because we're in Christ. So when we read that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world, and then when we understand that other passages speak of the fact that the Father chose and placed His redeemed in the Son, then guess who else God loves before the foundation of the world? Us, by virtue of our union with Christ. And again, this forms for us the foundation of the fact that we have eternal life because we have been united by faith with an eternal being. God cannot deny himself. We cannot be stripped away from that which we have been united to. And so why, do, why does salvation bring eternal life? It's not because God wants us to live forever, although that's true, 
But really, the reason we have eternal life is because Christ is our eternal life. This is, this is why Jesus says this is eternal life, that they know you, the only Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That knowledge of Christ places us in to that great hope. So I just point that out to show this understanding of the Trinity, and particularly the eternality of the Trinity, actually has very significant implications for our salvation. Like, when Jesus says that no one will pluck us out of his Father's hands, that is so certain because Christ would have to cease to be Christ. Christ would have to cease to be the second person of the Trinity for those who are in him to cease to have salvation. Like, you understand how firm our salvation is. And God never changes. So if Christ is always going to have eternal life, then those that are in Christ will, will have that eternal life for all eternity, and they will be loved by the Father for all eternity. So we're going to talk about the eternal trinity this evening. And the first thing, and, and one thing that I think is, is sort of obvious um, when we talk about God and we talk about the trinity is, is, and we think we think this way. When you think of God, let me ask you this. When you think of God, which person of the Trinity do you usually think of? When you just think of God in a general sense? The Father. All right? We generally connect the idea or the concept of God with the Father. And, and that is biblical. That's what Christ did. That's what the apostles did. That's what we see in Scripture. And so if God has always existed which the Bible teaches he has, then what does that tell us about the Father? The Father has always existed. Now, there's many different passages we could go to to look to this, but um, I think one thing that, that, again, if we understand from the implications of Scripture, the strong implications of Scripture, is understood in the fact of life. Where does life come from? Where do we get life? Where, 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 how did life come about on this planet? Was it that billions of years ago there was some sort of primordial ooze and you had some, you had some uh, um, amino acids getting together and having a party with some other, what, some other enzymes or whatever and they had, this, they had this nice rave at the beginning of, of ancient history and then life sort of exploded on the earth. Is that where life came from? Chemical reactions that just happened to happen? No. Where does life come from? In the, from God. Notice what he says, in, notice what John says in 1 John 1 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. For things to proceed or come from the Father, what does that then imply about the existence of the Father? He came. Before those things. So if life exists and, and God is the cause of all life, then he must exist before that life came into being. Uh, if, if, if time came into being by God's plan, then it implies then that God existed before time began or outside of time. Now it's interesting to note what John says here. The eternal life, this life that God has, it was with him. 
He possessed it. And then he manifests it through his work of creation. There's a, a scientific question that, that philosophers and even to some degree some philosophical scientists struggle with, um, particularly because they're coming from a humanistic standpoint. And the, the question is, why is there something rather than nothing? Have you ever heard that question before? Why is there something rather than nothing? Um, and it's one of the most basic questions regarding existence, not just of humanity, but of everything that's here. Why, why does the universe exist? And the answer from a biblical standpoint is everything exists because God, because God created those things. He manifested that life to us. Because the Father is the originator of life, He then has always had this life, and for life to come, He had to exist before time, before space, before material things existed. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, what? God. And then what did God do to manifest that life? He created. He created the heavens and the earth. And then we see the full-orbed plan of God in creating all things. Now, one other thing that is important to recognize about God, does He derive His life from anything? Where does God get His life? In Himself. Notice what, is, what Jesus says in John chapter 5. As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This makes us completely different from God. We are created in his image, but we do not possess life in and of ourselves. Your life, your existence is not the result of chance. Your life and your existence is not the result even of your actions to bring it about. And I mean, we, we understand this from a very basic viewpoint. You know, I exist because I have parents who decided that I would exist, all right? That's why I'm here. Even from that very basic standpoint, we understand we don't have anything to do with our existence or our life. But the, but the continuation, the preservation of our life comes from the Father. The Father doesn't require anyone to maintain His life. He doesn't derive it from other, some other source. He doesn't look to some other power source or he doesn't look to some other energy to provide it for him. He just has it. It's in himself. And so it's important for us to keep and recognize that understanding. And I think it shows he had to exist before life existed to bring life into existence. So the Father has always existed. Um... Any questions about that? I remember that when we had one of the Q&As, somebody asked the question of when did God begin? And this is where it's important to recognize He never has a beginning. If He had a beginning, then whatever it was that caused Him to exist would then be greater than Him. Just in the same way as if He derived life from something, whatever it was that He derived life from would be greater than Him. Now, can we grapple with that and fully understand that? No, because our experience has always only been of dependence on things for life. 
So we're, tr- tr- we're trying to understand and talk about something that is beyond a realm that we've never experienced. We don't even have the words to truly put it together. Um, so the Father has always existed. Now this, and, and most Christians will assent to that point. Most people, even from a philosophical standpoint, who, who believe in God. So most theists would say, yes, God has existed for all eternity. But the question that has confronted Christianity for years is that same thing to be said of the Son and the Spirit? Or did the Father create the Son and the Spirit? What do we think? Did the, did the, were the Son and the Spirit created by the Father? No. All right? Because just, and so again, let's go back to our, our logical thinking about this. The Father is a person of God, all right? God has always existed and God has never changed. So if we can say that the Son is God and that the Spirit is God, then what do we naturally then have to conclude? They have always been God. And so while we say the Father has always existed, we also see the fact that the Son has always existed. And back to our our main passage for this week. The Son, praying here, is desiring that those whom He's saving, those who are in Him, will see His glory. That glory is like the glory that the Father has. They see my glory that you have given me. Now, what's important to note here is the Bible says elsewhere, does God share His glory? God does not share His glory with anyone. So if someone claims to have the glory of the Father or the glory of God, then they're making a claim that they themselves are God. So when Jesus makes this statement and say that you have given me glory glory that is like your own, then he's making a statement that he is God. And by extension then, to have that glory, he's had that with the love that the Father has had with him before the foundation of the world. So this verse here clearly establishes that Jesus, while he was on earth, taught that he was God. And as such, he has always been the Son of God. We also see this in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3a. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by who? His Son. So what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is God has spoken through written, inscripturated words. The prophets were speaking. And he, he provided that message through many different means. Sometimes he spoke audibly to them. Sometimes he gave them dreams. Sometimes he just used them as, as the, through the process of inspiration. But now, as the writer of Hebrews is writing, he's saying Christ has come, and so the clear, most, um, most explicit revelation of God, speaking of God, is found through his Son, Now notice what he says about the Son. He is appointed the heir of all things. Now there's there's an indication there already to the fact that the Son is God. Who owns all things? 
God does. Notice what else. Through whom he also created the world. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, who created? So if the writer of Hebrews is saying that the Son created, what is he making a statement about? The Son is God. And then he had to exist before creation existed. But there's an even more explicit statement here. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, I have heard people argue, and they would say that the, that the, that the writer of Hebrews here is actually teaching that the Son was created because he's saying that, that out, of the, out of the glory of God, he radiated the Son so that the glory existed and then produced the Son. Now, there's a problem with that when we look at the rest of what is said here. All right, first of all, do we buy that statement that, that the glory of God radiated to bring about the Son? Because he does say he is the radiance of the glory of God. Do we buy that? No, and here's why. Because he then goes on to say he is the exact imprint of his nature. He shares the very nature of God. So he's not, he's not just simply saying that he, he emanated from or he was created by God. Rather, he's saying he shares his very nature. He is God. And he is the one who is upholding this entire universe by the word of his power. So we have, we have, both, we have what, we, what we see here, a, a natural theology explanation for the deity of Christ from all eternity. He's the creator. But we also have a theological or a doxological view that because the Son shares the nature of God, He is God. So are you with me? You're following me? I know this is sort of some heavy lifting theology to, to work through. Um, we see it again too in Colossians chapter 1. He, the Christ, is the image of the invisible God. So the point that, that, the, uh, that the writer of, or that Paul is making to the Colossians here, he, he images God, not in the same way that we image God, but that he has a clear image of this invisible God. When you look at Christ, you see God. That's the implication of what he's saying here. And part of the reason for that is, particularly when we understand Christ in his uh, incarnation, he was tempted like us in all points, yet without what? Sin. He had no sin. And then again, notice what he says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So again, we go back to that's the same argument we make about the Father. If, if the Father created all things, then he had to exist before all those things existed. Here we have the Bible saying, who, who created all things? The Son. And so for the Son to create all things, he had to exist before those things came into being. So the Father has always existed. The Son has always existed. Now, when we talk about that, you're, you're, going, to have, um, you're going to have different um, 
cultic views from quote-unquote Christian organizations that are going to say the Son has not always existed. So Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, they will come in and they will, they will disagree with this aspect. They will say that God the Father has always existed, but that the Son came from Him. Um, we don't have the time to get into this, um, but, there, but there is a doctrine of what we call the eternal generation of the Son. Have any of you heard that term? Okay, so John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His what? Only begotten Son. Um, we don't have time to get into all the details of this. But what, I, what I will say is that there has, there has been an eternal generation of the Son from the Father. Um, it is not that the Son was created. It's that the, the Son it proceeds from the Father. And you may think, well, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense and I'm, I'm now regretting even bringing it up because it's, it's, a, very, it's a very difficult thing to talk about. But, but, but the Bible explains or, or describes this idea that the Son has been eternally generated by the Father. Not created, but that He eternally proceeds from the Father. Um, and, that this, and what makes it different than any other thing in creation and what, and, and what we're talking about is dynamics between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which, again, we're talking about a being that is beyond our comprehension. So we have to take what the Bible says at face value, but we maybe can't always connect all the dots together. But the Bible does not say that there was a time when the Son was generated. It just says that the Son was eternally generated or has always been generated by the Father. What that means in, in being able to explain it, maybe we'll find out when we get to heaven. Um, and probably we won't even care <laughs> at that point. But the Bible does, does speak about this concept of the eternal generation. When you hear someone refer to that, they are not saying that the Son was created. They are saying that the Son has, from all eternity past, proceeded from the Father. All right, you got that? Good. If you understand it, you can come teach the rest of the lesson because I don't understand it also. The final thing is the Spirit has always existed. While there has been disagreement among cultic groups about the Son always existing, it is the Spirit that has been the most attacked person of the Trinity regarding His eternality. Some people refer to the Spirit or think of the Spirit as a way in which God relates to mankind. This is a, term, this is a heresy called modalism. So that, uh, so that the Spirit acts this way. Or in the same way that we have a Spirit, that's sort of God's Spirit from that perspective. Um, and those, that's sort of crossing over between what we call the differences in the persons of the Trinity. But the Bible's clear that the Spirit always existed. And again, we made the argument to begin with. The Father has always existed because He created all things, right? He was there at creation. The Son has always existed because He created all things. Well, was the Spirit involved in creation? Yeah, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is before 
the sun, the moon. This is just the earth had been created. Nothing else existed. The Spirit is there. And the Spirit becomes pivotal in bringing about the creation of all things. We also see in Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews makes this statement. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through what? The eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What you see here is the Trinity referred to as one but three. Christ offered Himself through the Spirit to God, which is the Father. And then He speaks of how all of this is done to purify our works, to purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the singular God. So you actually have Trinitarian doctrine being taught in this passage. And beyond that, there's a clear, explicit statement that the Spirit is eternal. He has always existed. We talked about how God is the source of life, and particularly the Father is the source of life. But how does the Father, how does God give that life? He gives it through the Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, there are some that would argue here, and they would say, well, Jesus is talking about spiritual life, not physical life. But this is something that I think we we tend to separate those two things because of the fall. But in reality, we were created for for both physical and spiritual life to be one in the same. You realize that, that they're not to be, we divide them because the Bible tells us that we, because of sin, are dead in our trespasses and sins. But even though we're dead in our trespasses and sins, are we still physically alive? Yes, but that was not how it was before the fall. Both our physical and our spiritual life were merged together. And God, in His mercy, separated them so that he could be true to his word. What did he tell Adam and Eve? In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely what? Die. Did they die physically? But did they die spiritually? Yes. And so that that separation is actually a, a work of God and mercifully being able to then have mankind have physical life whereby he is then able by the Spirit to provide spiritual life to those who turn to Christ. So all this to say, the Spirit just, Jesus here is saying it's the Spirit who is responsible for giving life. And again, this connects with the the Son who has life in Himself that's given to Him by the Father. So the Spirit gives that life because He is God. All right. So I think we've established biblically The Father has always existed. The Son has always existed. The Spirit has always existed. So if you remember our little diagram, our our Trinity diagram that we looked at, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. However, the Son, and I don't know if you can read it up there, the Son is and has always been God. The Father is and has always been God. The Holy Spirit is and has always been God. We cannot separate them apart or or point to them as being 
um, at, that, that, that there was a time when they were not God. They were always God. And so that brings us back to our question for today. Has God always been a trinity? Yes, God has been and always will be a trinity because he never changes. And Jesus' words in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And the great hope is that as the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world, so we who are united to Christ by faith, we also are loved by the Father before the foundation of the world. Any questions? If you have questions, I probably don't have the answers to them. <laughs> Again, this is, this, is, this is hard stuff to work through, right? Um, but, but it's nonetheless what the Scripture says. Yes, Ben. Right. Okay. Right. So what's what's that passage? Um, because I think it's important to understand what Jesus is saying there. Um, right. So, first of all, I would just say, then no one can inherit the kingdom of God. If that's, that has flesh and blood, then. That, that, would be the, that would be the natural response from that. So, and, and the, the, reality, the reality is that Jesus talks about, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the kingdom in physical terms. He talks about a physicality to the kingdom. Now, there are spiritual applications to that, but, um, but how, we're supposed to comfort, we're supposed to care for other people. The, the kingdom of God is, is given to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's not our spirits that are persecuted, it's our physical bodies that are persecuted. But this is 1 Corinthians 15, 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is in vain. So what Paul is saying is he is not completely discounting the idea of physicality. 
He is saying that there needs to be a radical transformation so that the body of sin will be changed to, ha- to take on a body that is immortal in the same way that Christ, and Christ is the one who goes before us in this. When Christ rose from the dead, he still had physical features, but yet he had an immortal, eternal body. We will be like that. And so the, the point here is not to say that, the, the, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, that, that he's, he's not saying that physicality, he's saying that this flesh and blood that is tainted by sin has to be put off so that we can take on a new body and, uh, that's made according to Christ who's gone before us. So that is not what Paul is teaching in that passage. But a good, good question. Any other questions? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love for us, Lord, and thank you for your word. And Father, as we, as we walk through these very difficult things, um, things that we cannot understand, yet your word reveals to us, uh, may we come in humility. Uh, may we understand that we will not be able to truly understand these things. And may our understanding of our lack of understanding drive us to humility to see that you, the great God, the one who is far above all things, that your grace is so great that you condescend to save sinners like us. And Lord, may we rejoice and hope in our union with Christ by faith that as you loved Christ before the foundation of the world, so you love all those in Christ before the foundation of the world. And may we rejoice that because we are united with Christ, he, he who has gone before us and has taken on the imperishable, that one day we will not see death, but that we will pass on into immortality. We will shed this flesh and blood that is tainted by sin and we will be like our Savior. So we can rejoice in the fact that death has no sting. The grave has no victory. And we, do, we speak and think of this all, giving thanks to you, the name of Christ, and giving glory to his name. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.